good coffee, everybody. Hey, it's time for some morning coffee with Larry, and I am glad that you are here to join with me today. I have a fresh, fresh cup. Just had one sip out of it, and I put in some of my wife's fancy coffee creamer flavor stuff. The, uh, what is it? It's a mint, chocolate mint. Now, let me, let me just, just listen here to how good it is. Mmm, that's some good stuff. Hey, you got to do that because it's Friday. Got to love Friday. Opening up for the weekend, it's going to be a good, good time. I hope you have some great plans for Friday. Get them all done and have a great time doing it. Oh, yes. It hasn't been a bad week. It's been a pretty good week, but it's just been, it's been a week where I'm ready for a Friday. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to continue on today on our series on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. <clears throat> and we're going to, we've, we've covered uh, what trauma is. We have covered what um, intrusions are. And today we're going to get into the uh, the uh, criteria C, which is on avoidance. Now, let me start with a story. Now, we've had some rain here recently. <clears throat> and um, if you're standing out in the rain, and it's a hot summer day, and the rain comes down, and it's just a light rain, and it's just refreshing. Wow, those are the kind of rains you don't mind standing out in. As long as you don't got your phone in your pocket that's going to get wet, your billfold's not in your pocket, you know, you're just, you're just out there and you're enjoying it. That's a good kind of rain. But let me, let me tell you a different kind. Let's go back to January, and it's cold. And it's probably, you know, around 35, 38 degrees Fahrenheit. And you're standing out in the middle of a parking lot. Imagine the Walmart parking lot. And you're just standing out in the middle of it. And you're not wearing heavy winter clothes. You're just wearing, you know, jeans, long sleeve shirt, and... You really didn't even throw on a coat because you thought, okay, you know, I can I can go inside very quickly. And when you're outside, as, as you go outside, it starts a downpour, an icy cold rain. Yeah, you're getting soaked. It's cold. How long are you going to stand there until you say, you know what? I don't think I like standing here anymore. I think I'm going to uh, find someplace else to stand. I'm going to go under the eave of a building, or I'm going to go inside a building. How long is it going to take you? Yeah, not long at all, because that's extremely uncomfortable. It's painful in some ways. So you want to get out of that as quickly as you can. You want to avoid what is painful. You want to avoid what is unpleasant. You want to avoid what you don't like. Pardon me a second. And that is the same with PTSD. 
you had you a person had experienced a trauma or a series of traumas or what seemed like a never-ending trauma and they now have intrusions they have unwanted thoughts that pop into their head they have unwanted emotions that pop into their head they're having physiological reactions to various triggers and stimulus there's things all around them that can remind them of the trauma when they don't want to think about it. So what do you do? What's the most natural thing to do? Just like in my little story, you want to get away from it. You want to find that building that's warm, that is safe. You don't want to stand out in the rain. And that's what avoidance is about when it comes to PTSD. You want to avoid the things that trigger or remind you of the trauma. So let me read criteria C to you. And there's two parts, subparts to it. Criteria C says persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic event or events beginning after the traumatic events occurred as evidenced by one of the following. So what we're seeing here is that we're avoiding stimuli associated with it. So what is stimuli? That's just the fancy way of saying anything that reminds you of it. So maybe it is uh, there's um, certain smells, certain signs, I mean, you know, like, like visual, things that you see, hear, taste, touch, those things that are triggers, certain ones remind you. You know, in my work with uh, veterans, one of the things that is a common trigger, especially for Vietnam veterans, is the sound of a helicopter. Why? Well, for many people that went in during the, the latter part of the 1960s, they had not ever seen a helicopter face-to-face, firsthand. They, they were not, you know, they hadn't been around very long. There was just experiments with helicopters, you know, around the time of World War II. And there were uh, small helicopters that were used in the Korean War. And people had seen that on the TV show MASH in the 70s. But we're talking about the 60s. You didn't have traffic helicopters. You didn't have, you know, the recreational use of helicopters. So for many, the very first time they saw helicopters was when they went into the military. And the helicopters were used for transporting, you know, the the military, the soldiers, the Marines. It was used for transporting them. You either had Hueys that could hold, you know, eight or ten. Then you had the Chinooks that could hold, I don't know, 20 to 30. And when you were coming in with a helicopter, the enemy could hear you. And so if they were anywhere near, they, when you were coming out of the helicopter, you were often meeting enemy fire, enemy mortars, uh, rockets, all kinds of stuff. And when you left, when you were being taken out, extracted, a lot of times there were firefights there too. So there was trauma associated with the helicopter. 
the visual sign of the helicopter, the smell of the exhaust of the helicopter, the sound of the helicopter, the unique sound of different types of helicopters. And so that becomes a trigger. You know, for a lot of of rape victims, it's the smell of certain colognes, the cologne possibly that the rapist was wearing. It could be the race of the rapist. Were they white? Were they black? Were they Asian? Were they Hispanic? You know, the different things like that gets tied into the trauma. And so these things become stimuli, triggers. And and so the person starts avoiding those things. So there's two types of avoidance that the DSM talks about. The first one is avoidance of efforts. Uh, avoid it, I'm sorry. <clears throat> avoidance of or efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about the clo- about or closely associated with the traumatic events. So here we're talking about internal stimuli, our thoughts. And I would include in with that also our emotions, because the emotion during the trauma could also be a trigger if we experience that emotion somewhere else. The emotion of vulnerability is not necessarily bad or life-threatening, but if it gets associated with the trauma, then it can be interpreted that way. So here there's efforts to not think about it. There's efforts to not feel emotions associated with it. I want to just turn off those emotions. But emotions, they, they're kind of like they come from one spigot. You know, like you have the outdoor water spigot on the house. And you just have the one there. You don't have multiple ones. And when it comes to emotions, when you start turning off your emotions to try to avoid the painful ones, you get a whole lot of of emotions. Basically, all of them get turned off. And there's only two that really have the strength to break through the avoidance. That's intense fear and intense anger. So we're avoiding our thoughts, our memories, our feelings that are closely associated with it. So we're putting a lot of effort into that. Think of it like a manhole cover and there's a monster trying to come out. Well, you you put all your attention trying to keep that manhole cover down. You stand on it. You put weights on it. You try to, you know, drill, put drill uh, screws, drill screws into it. You want to do everything you can to keep that manhole cover with the monster underneath locked down. So we do that with our thoughts. We do that with our thoughts. The second type of avoidance that's listed here is avoidance of or efforts to avoid external reminders. This is what I was alluding to earlier. We're trying to avoid the external reminders, such as people, places, conversations, activities, objects, situations. That arouse distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about um, or closely associated with the traumatic event. So we want to avoid these external stimuli. And that's kind of what puts us into a smaller and smaller bubble and can put us into a smaller and smaller jail cell. 
You know, if you go back several years ago, um, we didn't know really effectively how to treat PTSD. If, if we go back in time, in the 1970s, um, late 60s, early 70s, we were operating under the uh, what was called DSM-2. You know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we're on the fifth edition right now. And the first edition had a diagnosis in there that was somewhat similar to what we understand PTSD to be. In DSM-2, which was in 1968, they removed that diagnosis. And they basically made, uh, the, the closest thing they had was just for passing Stressors. It really wasn't long-term or truly trauma-based. So we didn't have anything for a diagnosis. Uh, we were basically giving people the diagnosis of the symptoms. Uh, if somebody's using alcohol as a way to avoid thinking about or feeling about the trauma, well, we just said, oh, you're just alcoholic, ignoring that it's tied into a traumatic experience. So in the 1970s, they came out with a term, a phrase, which was post-traumatic stress syndrome. Not a diagnosis, but this is something people are seeing and putting together as a pattern. Then in 1980, they came out with DSM-3. And there they had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was similar, pretty similar to the way we have it right now. There's been some changes as we've learned more about it, but we didn't know what to do about it. And typically what people were told was see a psychiatrist for medication to reduce your anxiety and learn what your triggers are and avoid them. Yeah. <laughs> so the medications that were typically used at that time were your tranquilizers that you know, by virtue of their just how they work, they're potentially addicting, some more so than others. And the avoidance, well, that wasn't really effective treating it. It was just helping to manage the symptoms, but it came with its own host of problems because all of a sudden people found themselves in a smaller and smaller circle. If, I, if they felt anxious going somewhere, if there was a trigger there, they just wouldn't go. Next thing you know, you got people that are isolated in their homes. Later, I think it was in 1987, they came out with DSM-3R and they kept modifying it. But it was really in the 1990s that people started making a lot of progress and with the treatment of PTSD and trauma disorders. And that's when we started realizing that the avoidance wasn't helpful. The avoidance actually resulted in this condition lasting longer. Because stop and think about it. When If you get triggered by a, a smell or a sight, or let, let's just pick crowds. If a person is feeling triggered by a crowd, and they as soon as they feel it, they have to leave that area. They have to get away from the crowd. What message is that sending to the brain? Hey, this crowd was dangerous. It was so bad we had to hurry up and leave. Yeah, 
That's the message that it's sending. And so it turns into a reinforcement. See, avoidance, while it makes total sense, hey, I'm standing out there in the middle of the rain in January and I'm getting wet and it's cold and it's miserable. I need to get out of this. While that makes sense, depending on how it's done, doesn't work really for PTSD as far as recovery and treatment. Now, I'm not, I don't tell people to, all right, what you need to do is <clears throat> go out there to that trigger and just grit your teeth and clench your fist so you got white knuckles and just bear it. No, I never tell somebody to do that. I, ex- I, I am very consistent in saying, don't you dare do that because what you're doing is you're doing kind of like a re-trauma. You're, you're traumatizing yourself again in that situation. <clears throat> what I want you to do is I want you to start changing what you believe about the trigger. I want you to understand what triggers are. That the triggers are just things that basically through classical conditioning, go back to intro to psych 101, it's classical conditioning has taken place. You understand what it is and you develop a plan to minimize the distress, and you go in there and experience it with a plan where you're reducing the, the, the sensation of distress and you're putting in correct, accurate beliefs about that situation, about that trigger. And that's a means of desensitizing, uh, turning off uh, structures in the brain that, that trigger it. So those are the, the when it comes to avoidance, those are the uh, the two criteria, per, and they they need to meet um, one or or both. So it's it's avoidance of thinking and feeling about it, and it's avoidance of the external triggers as well. All right, that's it for today regarding PTSD. And tomorrow, well, not tomorrow. It's Saturday, so Monday we're going to get into uh, negativity. And why, why we develop negativity and what types of negativity is common when it comes to PTSD. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. And we'll see you on Monday. Have a good one. Bye-bye.